Well, in just a few minutes, we will jump into Revelation 17 and 18, and uh, we're getting close to the end of our study in the book of Revelation. We, we're talking about this a little bit in our Connect group on Tuesday night, and by the way, if you do not have one of those, a small group, let me highly encourage you to, to find a place where you can get connected. We've been going through Revelation as well and just talking about it, and the question was put out there of what, is your, you know, what are your thoughts? Having studied Revelation for a little while, what has been some of the takeaway and one of the comments was somebody said, it's not nearly as scary as it used to be. And I hope that, for those of you that have been with us for a little while, I hope maybe that's some of the takeaway. Those of you that are first time with us today, maybe you're jumping in thinking, oh my goodness, what in the world? We're right in the, here in the middle of Revelation, and that can be a little intimidating. And it can be intimidating. Quite honestly, it was a little intimidating to me on the front end, too, of having never gone through in this type of detail, preaching through before. Uh, but I would remind you, the title of this book indicates God's heart for us, and that is Revelation. The whole point is that God wants to unveil himself to us. He wants to show himself to us through this book. And there uh, been so many great takeaways. One of the biggest ones for me so far, as we go through and we've studied a lot about coming wrath and plagues and things that are quite honestly difficult to read and to process. But more than anything, I hope that, that your response in some ways has been similar to mine, and that is a motivation to say, we need to tell as many people as we possibly can about the grace of Christ. I mean, I, I read this and I read, yeah, the, the wrath of God is serious. We don't have to endure that. Jesus has made a way for us, and it should motivate us to want to share our faith and to talk about what he has done. Let's jump in as we are in chapter 17 and 18 today. So last week we left off with the last of the bowls of judgment. And we saw that God said, with this it is finished. But now he's going to go on and talk about judgment uh, on what he calls the great prostitute and the beast. What a heading over chapter 17 in my Bible here. But let's begin reading together. It says, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly, but the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings Five of whom have fallen, one, uh, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings, who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. 
These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called the chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitude and languages, nations and languages, and the ten horns that you saw, they are the beast, and they will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and standing over their royal power, handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. I remember again, last week, judgments poured out uh, on all the people. But now specifically, he talks about the judgment that is coming and this title here on this, this great prostitute. The woman is identified in verse 5 as Babylon the Great. So when he's talking about this great prostitute, he's talking about Babylon and uh, maybe to, to help us understand a little bit of what that term means, we need to go back to the beginning of who was Babylon in the Bible. And the first time we are introduced to Babylon is Genesis 11. You may remember the story of the Tower of Babel, right? The people coming together, they had one common language at that time, and they came together to build this tower and I quote from Genesis 11:4. it says they did this to make a name for themselves. So they were all about, let's build a tower up to the heavens, make a name for ourselves, reach up to the heavens. God comes down and he confuses their language so that they're not able to continue to build this tower. But that was the first time we see Babylon. And then uh, the Amorite king Hammurabi, which you probably heard of Hammurabi's code before, but he ruled from 1792 to 1750 in what is now Babylon. And then over a thousand years later, in 626 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar turned Babylon into one of the greatest world powers of all time. Uh, and the city of Babylon became known for its impenetrable walls. They were 40 feet high and so thick that a historian tells us that the king would have chariot races on top of the city wall. So that's how wide they were. They circled around the city that was about the size of Chicago. So, I mean, this is a massive area. And these walls that are 40 feet high, extremely thick. Uh, and Babylon seemed as though it would last forever, but that wasn't God's plan. And they... Um, uh, they, they, they came to their demise a lot quicker than they thought they would. But before that happened, 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar took all of the Jewish people out of Jerusalem and deported all of them to Babylon. And they were held captive there for about 50 years. So this is where you get the beginning of Babylon being this great enemy of the people of God. And that's the theme that we see carried on in Revelation. Uh, the Persian king Cyrus the Great conquered Babylon in five. 39 BC and the Jews were allowed if they chose to to return to their homeland uh, but Babylon was never rebuilt after that uh, after being conquered by the Assyrians did you know that Saddam Hussein actually attempted to rebuild Babylon he was in the process of trying to rebuild Nebuchadnezzar's palace he even went so far as to have a coin made with his likeness and the likeness of Nebuchadnezzar beside one another because he saw himself as the one who would restore Babylon to its 
glory days of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, if you know anything about history, or most of us were alive and remember that, at that time, you know, that didn't turn out so well for him. He did not accomplish his intended feat. But Babylon has, has never been rebuilt, but it continues to symbolize those who would rebel against God, the enemies of God. And if you read commentators about uh, chapter 17 and chapter 18, which we'll get into in a little bit, they disagree on whether Babylon, as it's described in Revelation, is referring to a literal city of Babylon. Will the city of Babylon be rebuilt literally, which is a possibility? The city, by the way, was about 50 miles south of Baghdad in, in modern-day Iraq, just to give you some idea of where Baghdad was, um, or where uh, Babylon was. But whether it is a literal rebuilding of the city... Or, in my opinion, I lean more toward that it is figurative and it represents any type of, of uh, kingdom or any type of people that would just be in rebellion against God. They come to power, but they're in rebellion against God. In my opinion, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference. Uh, what we know is that the essence of Babylon, the essence of Nebuchadnezzar, if you remember from the Old Testament, was that he exalted himself above God. In fact, at one point, it says that uh, he said this to himself as he was out on his rooftop. He said this, is not, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Now let me tell you, yeah, wow, I was right. When you start saying things like that, it's like you better look out. And God humbled him. If you remember Nebuchadnezzar for a period of seven years, he went insane. And he became like an animal, and he ate the grass, and was out and dent, uh, drenched in the rain and all that. And then finally, it says he lifted his eyes to heaven, he was restored. But Babylon, that, that gives us an idea, right, of the type of mentality that we're talking about here. Um, and, and I think it's broader than just the physical location. Just as if I were to talk about the influence of Hollywood. If I use that term Hollywood, I mean, Hollywood could mean a literal specific place, right? A, a district in Los Angeles. But when you think of Hollywood, you probably think more of the influence, a broader influence on uh, all across our country. That's more how I view what he's talking about here when he talks about Babylon. But verse 3 describes this woman, this prostitute who is Babylon, sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. Now, the beast, as you recall, is the Antichrist. So you see this religious component here. You see this throughout Revelation of uh, how the, the beast, how this woman, this prostitute, they're all trying to take the place of God. And it, it happens over and over again. They're blasphemous names. We pointed out um, back in chapter 13 what was meant by the seven heads and the ten horns because that came up in 13 and it's explained here in chapter 17. Uh, but there are, these seven heads represent seven kingdoms. It says five of them have already come. That would be Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Greece. It says that one of them currently is, which would be the kingdom of Rome at that time, that there's one more coming. We don't know exactly what that is. And then there will be an eighth, which will be the kingdom of the Antichrist. The ten horns then represent ten kings that will rule simultaneously. It says in what we just read for one hour, meaning which is a figurative way of saying, for a very short period of time, there are going to be these ten kings that rule alongside the Antichrist, and then it says they will give their power to the Antichrist. So this is a very short period of time. We're talking about what takes place during the, the tribulation period where all the people come together and there's this one world order kind of thing happening here and this one person who is ruling over everything. 
And we saw in previous chapters how they were being forced to worship an image of the beast and all that. Back in verse 4, it says that this woman, let's go back to her for a moment, that she is arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. And it says she holds in her hand a cup that is filled with her sexual impurities. You see this theme over and over again, right? This theme of her being a prostitute, sexual impurity. And the idea here is that she is drawing people away from their primary affection, which should be for God. And isn't it interesting how frequently in the Bible it uses this term of adultery or prostitution to represent anything that draws our hearts away from God. That most intimate part of who we are that is intended to be united with God alone. If we give that core intimate part of us to anyone or anything else, that's like adultery. That's like prostitution. And so this, this Babylon, it says, is this woman, and she is seducing people. And she's described as purple and all this, described as a very seductive, a very attractive woman. It reminded me of Proverbs 5, 3 through 5. It says, for the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey. And her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps lead straight to the grave. So this Babylon was, she was enticing, and she caused people to come after her. And this emphasis on indulging the flesh is what causes her to be named the mother of all prostitutes. I find it interesting and Uh, revealing, sad, a lot of different adjectives I could use to see how the tactics that Satan has used in the Bible have always pretty much been the same, you know? I mean, you look at, we'll, we'll get to another one here in chapter 18 in a little bit, but you look at the primary areas where Satan tempts sexual morality. I mean, you think that's still a deal today? Is that still a problem today? I mean, from the very beginning, all the way through the Old Testament, all the way into the, to the New Testament, into our current world that we live in today, it's crazy how uh, that continues to be a major issue. And so with that in mind, let me just take a little, about a two-minute interlude here to talk about this because this is such an important topic for us to address. Be so careful about protecting your sexual purity. Wherever you find yourself in life, if you're single, be very careful about the safeguards that you put in place to protect yourself. Be very careful about the standard and and understanding what a godly standard for purity is and maintaining that. But it's not just those who are single who need to protect against this. Those who are married do every bit as much, if not even potentially more so. We would probably be shocked to know the number of married adults who have been sexually active with someone other than their spouse But even those that haven't physically been involved in an adulterous relationship, Jesus was pretty clear about if you've committed adultery in your heart, then you've committed adultery, right? Think about pornography and just other other things in our society that are so prevalent that make it so easy for our hearts to be drawn away uh, from where they need to be. Man, that's so important for us to have proper Uh, mindset and a proper heart and you know really what we need is for God to change our hearts I mean yes there are some things that we can do and we'll talk about a couple of those but what we really need is for God to change the way we think God to change our desires God to help us see uh, people of the opposite sex as brothers and sisters 
not as, as an object of our pleasure. But there are some things that, that we can do. Uh, those that are single have those standards in place. Know where you draw the line and commit to that early and communicate that clearly. And when you find yourself in a place where you're tempted, do what Joseph in the Old Testament did. When uh, the woman came after him and tried to grab him, he just took off and ran. Get out. But for the rest of us, everybody, even those that are married, we still need to have those same kinds of safeguards to protect us. And I put a, some links to a couple of things in the online bulletin. I would encourage you to check out if you're not familiar with a resource called Covenant Eyes. It's a great one. Or you can register to have. You put it on your phone, your, your computer. And if there's some explicit material that comes across your screen, it will notify somebody else. So it's just an added layer of accountability there. I put a link to our regeneration ministry, which is a fantastic ministry for any type of recovery or any type of sin issue that we're dealing with. And we all have things, but in particular, this would be a great next step. Uh, but just having those things in place, it's, it's, it was an, a problem back then, and it continues to be a problem today. Verse 6 reveals the true nature of this woman. It says, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Her desire is to get rid of the people of God. And, and, and Babylon is a tool of Satan, and Satan's desire always is to come after the people of God. We see that today. We've always seen that. And then in verse 16, it says that eventually this woman will receive her due. So we talked about the plagues that have come on the people in general, but this chapter is about the, um, the, the, the torment that she's going to receive. She's going to get what she deserves because of all that she has done. And verse 16, really interesting, says that the beast, the Antichrist, and the ten, ten kings that rule alongside him are going to turn against her. So whoever this is, literal Babylon or some other nation that, that uh, represents the same types of things, these, she's going to be turned against and she's going to be destroyed. All right, let's keep reading in Revelation 18 as we get some further detail here. It says, after this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Makes a double portion for her in the cup she mixed as she glorified herself and lived in luxury so give her a like measure of torment and mourning since in her heart she says I sit as a queen I am no widow and mourning I shall never see for this reason her plagues will come in a single day death and mourning and famine and she will be burned up with fire for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her man when it comes it's going to come quick 
and it's going to be serious, and Babylon will be destroyed. Verse 4 is such a powerful statement. I want to come back to it in a moment and spend the rest of our time here where he says, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. But before we do that, let me just basically summarize, because there's a lot of material we're walking through today. Let me summarize the rest of chapter 18, uh, just so we have a picture of what's going on here. Verse 9 says that the kings of the earth who united themselves with this great prostitute and lived in luxury will weep and wail over her destruction. In fact, it says a couple of times that they will stand far off in fear of her torment. Here's what I think that means. That they see what's happening to her and they weep not because they care about Babylon, but because they're concerned about how that's going to impact them personally. They're no longer going to be able to benefit from her the way that they did before. You know, all this made me think about uh, as maybe something we can relate to. Think about the early days of Russia invading Ukraine. Remember what that was like? It hadn't been that long ago. And just, you see the images and it's just, you know, it's heartbreaking to see those kinds of things. And we were concerned for the Ukrainian people. But we were also told on the front end that gas prices are going to skyrocket as a result of this. You remember that was, that was big news. Now, nobody would admit this. But I suspect there were plenty of us in the United States that were more concerned about rising gas prices than we were about the plight of the Ukrainian people. When I look at this, this is a matter of the people weeping and wailing for Babylon. It's not because they're concerned about Babylon. It's because they're saying, oh my goodness, who's going to buy our stuff? Where are we going to get the things that she was able to provide for us. And we see that in verses 11 through 13. It says, The merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple, cloth, silk, scarlet, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood. And it goes on and on and on. All the things that, that would not be purchased from them anymore, verse 15 says... That they are mourning their loss. So it's easy to see why God says what he does in verse 4. When he says, come out from her. Do not be like her because I don't want you to be caught up in uh, what's going to happen to her. And so I want to end by unpacking verse 4 just a little bit more for us today with a couple of points of application. And the first one is this, is that we need to remove ourselves from the sinful patterns of this world. It says, come out from her. I think it's really, really important for us to explain that. Because if you leave it at just that, one of the conclusions could be, okay, then we just need to completely isolate ourselves and have no interaction whatsoever with those that are not Christians. And, and it's clear from Scripture that that's not what this means. In John 17, Jesus was praying for his disciples. And he even said, I'm not just praying for them, but those that will believe as a result of their message, which that includes all of us. This is part of the prayer that Jesus prayed for them and for us. John 17, 14 and 15 says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. Now listen to verse 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. 
See, Jesus is saying, I don't want the world to influence them. I want you to protect them from that. But I'm not asking that you take them out of the world. Because Jesus also said clearly that we are the salt of the earth. That we are the light of the world. And he went on and said, you don't take a light and light a life and put it under a basket or put it under a bowl. But that you put it in a place where it can shine. Where, where is light needed? In the darkness. Obviously, right? So as believers, as followers of Christ, it's not that we completely isolate ourselves because we need to let our light shine in the darkness. But at the same time, we have to be careful because we don't want to become like the darkness. We don't want our light to be dimmed by those around us. And so while there is that important element of being involved with, and I think we should have friends that are not believers. I think we should, if you have kids, put them in sports programs where they're unbelievers. I mean, do things on purpose where you can be around other people that don't know Christ so that you have the opportunity to build relationships and share the gospel. That's the goal. But at the same time, we also have to watch and evaluate and say, okay, at what point is this beginning to make me become more like them? And so we also need that separation from the world. We need to be surrounded by believers that can encourage us. Because we tend to become like those that we spend the most time with, right? That's why we harp over and over and over again on the importance of things like Christian community. Be involved in a small group. Be involved in some type of ministry where you are surrounded by other believers and you can help each other grow. Because we need that. This is going to be a difficult time for Christians here uh, during this period. And um, he says, but I want you to come out and not become like them. Especially during this tribulation period, they're going to need one another more than at any other time. You know, I think we need to be honest enough to admit that it's not easy to live out our faith. And it, it really won't be easy during this period of time because um, the, you know, the church has been raptured already. There are still believers on earth, but not as many, and the, it's getting worse, and Satan's just letting loose. And so it's going to be worse, but it's hard enough right now. And so we need to do everything that we can to encourage one another to be there for one another. But the two sin issues, the main issues that are discussed in chapter 17 and chapter 18, when he's saying come out from them and do not be like them. We've already talked about one of them for quite a, quite a long time, but it's the sexual morality. I mean, that keeps coming up over and over and over again. And we, again, I would just say be very intentional about how you prepare for that and how you guard yourself against that, whatever that looks like for you in your particular stage of life. But the second one that we see in chapter 18 is, is greed. It's the desire for material things. It's, he, he talks about how she lived in luxury. And I, guys, let's just be honest. We live in a part of, of the United States, which first of all, by far the richest country in the world, and we live in an area that is on the, the higher end of wealth, even within the United States. And as a result, I think we have become so accustomed to um, a lot of luxuries. I, I think this is a blind spot for us as believers. I think it is in my life. Uh, something that, that, that I am constantly thinking through and evaluating. I came across some statistics that were really interesting, just talking about um, you know, the, the stuff that we have and what we get used to. 
This one blew my mind. I don't know who came up with this or exactly how they figured this out, but they said there are, on average, 300,000 items in the average American home. The average home size has tripled over the past 50 years. But in spite of that, still 1 in 10 Americans rent off-site storage. 25% of people with two-car garages have no room to park even a single car because there's so much stuff in the garage. Or 32% can park one car in there because the rest of their stuff can fit on half the garage. There are more than 51,000 storage units in the United States, almost four times as many as there are Starbucks. Want to guess the state with the most storage units in the United States? Yeah, you drive around and you're like, I think I can guess the county with the most storage units in the United States. Texas. There's 7.3 feet of storage for every American, which means in theory, all of us could stand within a storage unit at the same time. 3.1% of the world's children live in America, but they own 40% of the toys produced in the world. Yeah, I'm, I'm just passing this on you. Don't, don't throw stuff at me. The average American woman, anytime you start a sentence like that, it's like, man, you better be careful. The average American woman owns 30 outfits. In 1930, that number was nine. The average American throws away 65 pounds of clothing each year. And we spend more on shoes, jewelry, and watches, over $100 billion, than on higher education. I think we have an issue with materialism, with greed. And that, that's what is being addressed in this book. And, you know, maybe we just need to, to wake up a little bit. And by the way, let me say this. The, the issue is not whether or not you have wealth. We see godly people throughout Scripture that are wealthy people, that God blesses them in that way. The issue is whether wealth has us. What, what is our mindset? Where is our heart when it comes to material things? Here's the second point of application as we prepare to wrap things up this morning. Removing ourselves from sinful, removing ourselves from sinful patterns eliminates their consequences. Let me say that one more time without... Stopping in the middle of it. Removing ourselves from sinful patterns eliminates their consequences. That's what God is saying when he says, I want you to come out. He says, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. So I, I don't want this to happen to you. It makes me think about Lot and his family in the Old Testament. You remember this where God went to him and he removed Lot and his family before he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't want you... To, to be a part of them and to, um, to have the, the result, the plagues that they are going to go through. And, and you know, God's heart here is to protect us. And I want us to see that as clearly as we possibly can. Because you know, Satan's tactic is that he tries to convince us God is holding out on us, right? When it comes to things, I mean, you talk about... You know, having different standards sexually. You talk about uh, materially, you know, having different priorities. Satan would say, yeah, God's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to enjoy life like everybody else is able to enjoy life. Same tactic back in the Garden of Eden with, with Adam and Eve. Did God really say that? Oh, no, he knows that when you eat that, your eyes will be open. You'll become like God. God's holding out on you. And we have heard that lie so many times. And what he's saying here is I want you to understand I'm just trying to protect you. That's all. 
If you remove yourself from those sinful patterns, you're going to remove yourself from the consequences that come along with them. And I just simply want to protect you. Think about the two examples that we've talked about today. Sexual purity and greed. And God's desire in both of those is that we live differently from the rest of the world around us. Not because God doesn't want us to enjoy life but because God is protecting us. Think about how many uh, individual lives have been hurt and in some cases maybe even destroyed by sexual morality. Think about how many marriages have been destroyed by sexual morality. Think about what greed has done to individuals in our world, the stress that that can bring and the lack of priorities and, and children that in some cases don't even hardly have a relationship with their parents because they're so focused on making money that there's no time and energy left to invest in family. I mean, just think about the impact. Think about how much we've been hurt by these two areas. And God says, I don't want you to experience that. I want you to know me. I want you to understand what it is to, to have a relationship with me. And so as we look at God's judgments on Babylon, it Man, it, it ought to get our attention. It ought to open our eyes and maybe make the hair stand up on the back of our necks a little bit. But it also should cause us to say, man, I do not want to go down that pattern. I don't want to go that direction. But I want to give myself fully to God with everything that I am. That's my prayer for us. Let's pray. Lord, today, would you protect us? I pray specifically just the, the sexual temptation that we face and the materialism that we face in our society, it's hard to deal with. Protect our hearts, Lord, as your people help us to live differently and remind us of your goodness in the midst of those things. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Thank you for calling us out. And I pray that even now today as your people that we would be different from the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.